I uh, love to um, ask people what their favorite verse is in the Bible. I like um, superlatives, I like ranking things. And so uh, I used to get a lot of uh, Psalm 23s, you know, the Lord's my shepherd, shall not want. And then uh, also got a lot of Romans 8.28. Um, but now, you know, now I've noticed that uh, I get something else. And you might be just thinking right now to yourself what that might be. Um, the verse that I get the most these days is uh, Jeremiah 29.11. And you might not even know what that verse is. But it says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And I, I assume that I just assumed that that, that, there was, that was becoming a very popular verse in Scripture. And then I looked it up, and in BibleStudyTools.com, uh, in the year 2015, that was indeed the number one favorite verse in Scripture. Number two was Psalm 23. Number three was 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, and I used to, um, when I first heard about this Jeremiah 29 thing, I would kind of scoff at that idea that that would be someone's favorite verse. And, you know, I, one of those obnoxious seminary comments where I'd be like, they probably don't even know the context of that. They have no idea. That's talking about Israel. It has nothing to do with, like, God promising anything to an in, in, individual. And they probably don't even mean plans the way that they think they mean plans. But uh, that was all very stupid because um, what people love about that verse is right to love about that verse. And that is that... Uh, we are all afraid that God doesn't have plans and that he doesn't have plans to prosper us and that he doesn't have plans for a future. In fact, they, we think that maybe he has plans to do the opposite of those things. I had a um, friend, good friend last summer, whose marriage was falling apart. And um, they said to me, now that my marriage has failed, I honestly don't know what I have to live for. And that was a person who needed to know Jeremiah 29. And it could be something a lot smaller than that. You know, sometimes when I feel like um, a certain team's out of the tournament, then you just feel like, you know, what, what do I have to live for, at least for the next month or so? Or failing a class can sometimes just bring that weight on you. Certainly if you fail out of school or if your career tanks or some major setback, it just is so quick for us to feel like um, that there are no plans, that uh, there's certainly no prospering in the future. And so I want to look at what Mary was, uh, was probably feeling on this uh, Easter morning when um, she went to the tomb and it was empty, namely hopelessness. And you see that um, in verses 10 through 15, just weeping at three times. It's mentioned that she's weeping, so afraid to open up her heart. And um, ignoring all the evidence around her that is hopeful. That's the first thing I want to look at is the hopelessness of Mary. But then also, uh, it's, it's so important, this turning point that you see in verse 16, where suddenly she's given hope. And the whole, the whole passage changes. And by the end of verse 10, she's the very first evangelist ever. And she's going and telling them, the Lord is risen. I've seen the Lord. So from hopelessness to hope, this thing where God comes up from behind her, Jesus comes up from behind her, and says her name, Mary, and then everything changes. So I want to look at those two things. First of all, verse 10, it says that the disciples went back to their homes, but, and that adversity was very important there, but Mary stood weeping. 
outside the tomb. Almost like their home is, um, her home is the tomb. You know, they have, they have their homes to go back to, but she doesn't have a home. She has no home to go back to. These disciples were fishermen. They had a lifestyle to go back to. They had some, they probably had family to go back to. Mary had nothing to go back to. So she's just sitting there in the tomb, uh, kind of in, in a state, almost like in the place of death. She's just standing at the tomb. And she's weeping. Uh, she literally does not know what to do without Jesus. She's kind of paralyzed. It just says she stood there weeping outside the tomb. Verse 10 and 11 say that. In fact, it says that when she stoops to look in verse 11, she's still weeping. I mean, John is going out of his way to convey this idea that she is completely inconsolable. She wept as she stooped to look. She looks at the angel. There's angels there. And they say, woman, why are you weeping? So she's still weeping when she's talking to the angels. And then two verses later, apparently through the whole conversation with the angels, she's weeping. Because when Jesus sees her, he also asks, woman, why are you weeping? So it's hard to get into the the mind of Mary, but she's weeping so hard that she forgets to be afraid of angels. And almost every character in the Bible, when they see an angel, they're terrified. They just drop to the ground. But Mary is not even afraid because she, she's so devastated. And it's, it's worth trying to think back to a time in your life where you wept so hard that, that not, not, even a shocking thing didn't phase you. Or some great thing that happened didn't phase you. Or some terrible thing that happened didn't phase you because you're just so unable to be consoled. Now, why is she weeping so much? I think she says in verse 13, they've taken away my Lord. And it just showed that her entire life was Jesus. That was her home. She had no home but Jesus. She was from Magdala. We know that. We don't know a lot about Mary Magdalene, but she was definitely from the town of Magdala. And it was a pretty seedy town. It was like a a small version of Las Vegas. And we also know... um, from early church uh, that she was probably uh, an ex-prostitute. So she's from Magdala. She lived a life of prostitution for the majority of her life. It's said that that Jesus rescued her from seven demons. We don't know exactly what that means, but seven is the perfect number. So that means that there was probably a lot of mental health problems there in addition to some kind of spiritual oppression. A lot of times I'm trying to figure out which is which, but I think... The best thing to do with those two things is just to say it's all almost, there's a lot of times it's both. There's both spiritual forces at work, personalities that I think uh, are real. I do believe in demons. But there's also elements of that that would be mental illness. But the point is that without Jesus, she is 100% uh, hopeless. Uh, they have taken away my Lord. She has no profession to go back to. She has no one anymore to tell her that she's beautiful. I I would imagine that Jesus was probably one of the only people who ever told her that in a way that was actually safe and made her feel that way. No one liked to look at her the way he did and smile at her and call her name. And no one to protect her honor, as I'm sure no one did except for him. And then maybe afterwards some disciples. But her whole life is just completely ruined. Because her entire dream, the dream she dreamed was, was Jesus. And she just did not expect him to go away like this. Her whole life hinged on him. We saw the the great musical Les Miserables, uh, which was done by R.J. Reynolds High School, and it was incredible. They did a really, really good job. And I've always loved uh, that musical Les Mis. And there's a song by Fantine, 
And uh, I was already crying before this song came on. I just, every time I, I hear it or watch that, um, I, I just, it gets me like, probably like nothing else does, that particular musical. And Fantine in, the, in Les Mis, Fantine is, a, is a, also a, a prostitute. She has been driven to that. She's become a sex object for men. And she's living among the dregs of society. And this, I'm going to quote the entire song because it's so profound. Um, the song is called I Dreamed a Dream. And it, I just thought of this when I was reading about Mary because there's so many similarities. Uh, this is Fantine. There was a time when men were kind. Their voices were soft, their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song. And the song was exciting. There was a time. And then it all went wrong. I dreamed a dream in times gone by. When hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. But there are dreams that cannot be and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from the hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And I think the reason that song always gets me is that, I mean, for all of us, there are things that we thought our life was going to be like. And it's just not. It's not what we had dreamed. It's not what we had hoped. And it's created some hopelessness. Um, you know, one thing would be I, I'd never, I, I'll never get the degree. I thought I would get this certain degree. I never reached that. Um, I'll never have my health back. Uh, a lot of people have that dream that's just shattered. Uh, I'll never play basketball again is one that I've had many times. Um, I'll, I'll never have a fulfilling job. I know that some of you have had that feeling. Um, I'll be alone forever. That was what my friend felt a year ago. I'll never have children. I'll never be attractive again. These are things that we don't often tell ourselves are in there, but they're kind of, kind of like Fontaine. They're these dreams we had that are gone. And Mary is so hopeless that she has actually lost her ability to think clearly, to process things clearly. I, re- I recently listened to a, um, a podcast called Unbelievable. I really, really like Unbelievable um, with Justin Brierley. It's British. He always interviews a skeptic and then a, a believer, um, and he puts them in dialogue with each other. He does a really good job of having a really um, kind and just and fair conversation. It's not a debate. Unbelievable is the name of the podcast. And on one of them, there's a skeptic named Mike Rand, who I really liked. He was agnostic. He was willing to kind of think about faith. He was not sure what he believed. But one reason he could not believe in the resurrection was this story. And he said, I just can't believe that Mary would not recognize Jesus. This, this could not have really happened. Because she turned around and saw Jesus, verse 14, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Mike Rand said, that's not possible. There's no way that that could happen. I mean, how could she not recognize this person that she loved that much? And uh, I thought, no, it's very much possible. I I do it all the time. I I discount all sorts of positive evidence in front of me. Things that I see clearly, I will just discount them because of hopelessness, uh, because of despair. It makes us all ignore lots of evidence. This was a conversation that happened this week. Austin was like... uh, 224 people last week. Isn't that great? Great worship service. And I said, I said, really? It didn't seem like that many to me. And then he said, yeah, and then next week is Easter. It's going to be fantastic. 
And I said, you know, for us, Easter is always kind of low. It's always a low number because most people are either gone or they want to worship in the morning. And that conversation happens a lot between Austin and I, where he is giving me facts and I am responding with this kind of despair that just makes me uh, miss simple truths that I don't want to accept about good things that are happening. And Mary saw an empty tomb. She looked into the tomb, verse 11, and there is no body there. And um, it doesn't register to her. And then in verse 12, this is even crazier, she's talking to a couple of angels. Two angels in white are sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Still does not register to her at all. No, no hope. There's no body. There are two angels. And then she sees Jesus, verse 14. She turned around and saw Jesus. And I always think, like Mike Rand, if I saw Jesus risen from the dead, I would definitely believe in him. But the answer is you would not. You would not because Mary doesn't. And I think a refusal to hope can make us doubt almost anything. Because there are reasons that we want to hang on to our hopelessness. And I think the reason is that if we hope too much, uh, we might get hurt. That we don't want to open our hearts up to that. You know, what if you, what if you thought that you met the love of your life and you had planned the wedding in your head and you had already picked out the monogram towels and you had decorated the house with this person, you had named the children with this person and then suddenly they break up with you and you don't see it coming at all? Well, the next time that you start to feel something for someone romantically, what, do you, what are you going to do with those feelings? You're going to immediately shut them down. Now, they could, you could maybe, after some time, let them come back. But your first reaction is always to shut it down. There's a song by The Who called We Won't Be Fooled Again. Which I, I love this song. And uh, it's really about politics, but it would apply to most anything. Uh, the Who... Smile and grin at the change all around me, but the world looks the same. History ain't changed. We won't get fooled again. I think that's, that's kind of that uh, feeling we have that makes us discount a lot of hopeful things. I'm not going to get fooled again. I'm not going to get my hopes up again. That's a phrase. That's a terrible phrase. I don't know if, if any of you use that phrase a lot. I learned that phrase growing up because of uh, Wake Forest basketball games. And I would literally, I would cry when Wake Forest would lose a basketball game. This is when I was a kid, but it happened all the time. Three, three minutes left, we're up by 10, we're playing Duke or Carolina, and I would be so happy. This was before the, the, the fall. And uh, after the 20th heartbreaking loss like that, uh, I began to tell myself with three minutes left, we're not going to win this game. We're going to blow this lead. I know we're not going to win this game. Don't get your hopes up. And I would just tell myself that. Don't get your hopes up. And I still use that uh, with my children, uh, with other people. You know, I'll say we might get kill ones tonight, but don't get your hopes up. Or we, you might win this swim meet, but don't get your hopes up. Uh, we, you might get into a good college, but don't get your hopes up. There might be life after death, but don't get your <laughs> God does not say that kind of thing uh, to his children. He, he says, I want your hopes up. Not, not about ice cream or swim meet or college, but he wants our hopes up about something much bigger than any of those things. Even the loss of love. Uh, he wants us to have high hope in spite of all those things. Even in the world that Mary lived in, he wants us to have hope. 
Now, we can't generate that. I think that's been made very clear by this story, that, that in no way could Mary have roused herself to hope by meditation, um, by trying to get alone and just regroup. Um, she could have coped with the hopelessness maybe a little bit better, but she could not have engendered hope within herself. And that's why, in point two, clinging to her suspicion and ignoring all the evidence, suddenly God comes up from behind her and calls her name. And suddenly she has hope. God gives her hope. Notice that the angels use the generic term woman. I think, I think this is intentional. Woman, why are you weeping? And then when Jesus first talks to her in verse 15, he does the same thing. He says, woman, why are you weeping? But the turning point is in verse 16, and we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe it was the inflection, the tone of voice. But when he says to her, Mary, when he uses her proper name, then everything changes. And suddenly she has hope. Because he has spoken her personal, unique, God-given name, Mary. And then she has hope. And her response is so beautiful. The, the fact that it is in Aramaic, I love that, in verse 16. She whipped her, her head around because she's looking in the tomb and he's behind her. And she turns around and says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, with an exclamation point. There's a reason there's an exclamation point there. And there's a reason it's in Aramaic. Um, he says... Her name, Mary, in such a way that she instinctively jumps right to Aramaic. Um, They would have sometimes spoken in in Greek, perhaps. But in this case, um, it's something about the way that he says her name. that It's got to be the native tongue. It goes right back to the the native tongue. And this instinctive, my rabbi, Rabboni, my teacher. And um, there's a great song by an artist who sounds a lot like James Taylor. But I think his lyrics are better. His name's David Wilcox. And it's called Native Tongue. And uh, I think he's got to be referring to this story. Because he says, spoken words in Aramaic, sounds I'd never understand. In a local ancient dialect for the people of that land, God knows your native tongue. He knows the way you talk. Uh, He can talk to you in the slang that you use. Phrases you use. The way he said Mary... He knew her that well. He knows you personally. It's very easy to to, to believe that God so loved the world in general. Very hard to believe that God loved me or God loves you particularly. And if you were the only person that he ever created, that he would still love you uh, as much as he loves anyone. That he would still die for you. If you were the only person that ever lived, that Christ would have come and died. And... um, it's my name. You know, like he, he, he saw Moses at the burning bush and he said, Moses, Moses. Same thing with the call of Samuel. 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 He knows these people's names. And I, I sometimes wonder if Jesus walked in a room, would he, would he even know my name? Or would he be like, now I know it starts with a B. Is it Bob or Ben? You know, I, I always think that he wouldn't. And maybe you do too, that he wouldn't really know your name. But this passage is so clear that, that Jesus not only knows your name, he, had, he knows how to say your name. He knows how to say your name in a way that no one else can say. Benjamin Southwood Milner. He knows the whole thing. And every part of you. And so here's Mary of Magdala and here's Jesus of Nazareth. These two human beings, they're at this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea 
30 AD, it's Easter morning, the same time of year, and you have two very, very different human beings having this amazing exchange in front of a tomb. You have the everlasting man, you have Jesus Christ, the, the first fruits of the new creation, and you have the old hopeless humanity in Mary. And there's this exchange where God speaks uh, the, the new human to the old and, and says their name and hope, hope is born. That's what's going on here. This is the first resurrected human being ever. A lot of people think that Lazarus was also resurrected. He was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. There have been cases, I think, when human beings have died and they've been resuscitated. But when they come back to life, they just have the old same life, the mortal dying life. This thing that Jesus has is, is completely different. Um, he still eats fish. You know, he, he eats fish later on in the story of John. But he also passes through walls. And he, he still has his, his wounds on his hands and on his feet. But he, um, he looks so different that they can't recognize him always. He's so glorious. So there's this strange, mysterious, resurrected body. What Paul calls the spiritual body. And that's what's talking to Mary. And notice that uh, these two angels in white, uh, in verse 12, one of them is at the head and one is at the foot of a long... So it's like this long table like this, probably a little bit longer, made of stone. There's an angel hit there and an angel there. And these are big angels, maybe cherubim. So imagine a big stone table like that and there's a cherubim here and a cherubim here. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about. That is a, that is a thing in the Old Testament called the Ark of the Covenant. And on, there were two cherubim, and they were both... In the, on the Ark, they were, they were carved angels, and they were bowing down like that to the, the throne room, the King of Kings. And I think that John is setting that up to say, this is the King of Kings. This is Yahweh. This is the presence, the glory cloud that hovered over the Ark in the Old Testament. And now here he is talking to Mary and saying her name. This, uh, n- this is a new creation that is speaking into Mary's life. It's almost like a different dimension. I love the uh, book Flatland. That, that book helps me so much to think about the Incarnation. It was written by a mathematician from Oxford in the 19th century. And uh, it's, it's a story of a land that is flat, so everything's two-dimensional. You have squares, circles. And the more sides, the, high, the greater are the hierarchy. So the, the square is kind of low, the triangle is the lowest, the circle is the highest. And they can't figure out this thing where it, it starts as a dot, it grows to a little bit bigger circle, disappears, becomes a point, and goes away. They can't figure out this thing that keeps coming in and out of their world. But then you figure out in the story that it's a sphere, a three-dimensional sphere passing through the two-dimensional plane. And it's like an entire new dimension has come into our reality with the coming of Christ. This is not just another human being. This is, a, this is another dimension, another type of life that comes into this life. And I remember in um, 1992 in January, Christmas break, I was on my bed from childhood, in my room from childhood, reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And at some point uh, in the book, he says, if you want to pray right now, you're welcome to pray this prayer. Um, and I felt like there was this presence that came unseen from behind, if you will. And I didn't hear a voice, but I I could tell that it knew my name. And I could tell that it it liked what it knew. And that I was extremely safe and loved. And it gave me hope. 
Because here's eternal life intersecting our mortal life, and hope conquers hopelessness. I love the detail of Mary clinging to Jesus. This is one of those things that some people get kind of upset about. Like, he's, Jesus seems mean here. He's, he's shooing her away. But notice here, she, uh, she runs up. She clings to him. I imagine that her arms are wrapped around her neck, uh, his, his neck, and her head is on his shoulder, and she is probably convulsing, just shaking with, with hope and joy. And uh, he kind of, I think he kind of probably laughs a little bit and maybe holds her away from himself. And he's like, verse 17, you don't need to cling to me. It's literally like death grip in Greek. You, you don't need to hang on so tightly. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere yet. I have not ascended yet. I mean, he's not pushing her away. He's just saying, you got me. I'm, for, for, for 40 days, I'm still going to be down here. I'm not going away yet. And it's incredible that this is the very first eyewitness testimony to the new world is Mary of Magdala. I think it's incredible that John uh, puts that in here. I think it's incredible that it happened. Not just that John spotlights it, but, but that God would choose Mary of Magdala, of all people. Women were not even allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law, much less a prostitute. So why would John make up a story where he has, as the very first witness to the resurrection, a totally despised woman. It's an incredible thing. It also says so much about the way that God loves everyone at every place in the social hierarchy. That to that, he is no respecter of persons. He could care less what society says about one person or another. So, you know, America is probably going to get more polarized politically. I don't see that changing a whole lot. And women will keep being harassed in our country, and the polar ice caps will probably melt, and uh, New York City and Miami might go underwater, and Europe may well become a Muslim continent in 50 years, and, and Donald Trump might start a nuclear war before that happens. So uh, a lot of people will look at all that and say, the future is hopeless. Uh, don't get your hopes up. But in the face of all that, Jesus says, no. Get your hopes up, because there's a new world that has come, and the future is amazing. And every day, I'm calling people by their names. I'm calling them, whether they are African names, whether they're American names, whether they're Arabic names, people are being come up from behind the presence of the new creation, and the world is being changed. I heard a a London preacher this week named Andrew Wilson say this, he He ended his sermon with this. I'm going to end this sermon with this. He said, Ding dong, the witch is dead. Sauron is defeated. The ring of power is destroyed. Aslan is alive. Voldemort's killing curse has killed himself. Death is conquered. Hope is certain. Love wins. Everything sad is becoming untrue. And that's what we celebrate at Easter. And this meal is the victory meal of uh, this three-dimensional thing, this creature, this person, Jesus Christ, who has come into the world and has, has gained victory over death and mortality. And as a way of us taking part in that, he gives us this meal and he's saying, trust me, uh, you also will participate in immortality. That if, if, you, if you eat of me and drink of me, you will have my own, my own life in you. And you too will become three-dimensional as I, as I am. 
Um, you know, this is, he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And like Austin said earlier, um, we, we know that a lot of people come here and we want people to come here who, who do not know exactly what to do with this. They don't, they don't know for sure if there is a three-dimensional resurrected person. And um, if, you don't, if you don't necessarily believe that, uh, it's, I know it's a process and a journey for everyone whether they believe or not. So uh, we don't want you to feel any pressure to come and partake if, you, if you're not ready for that. So I just want to make that clear. I, I went to church growing up at times uh, when the Lord's Supper was served. I didn't know what to do. I felt pressure to come up and take it. And so I'm just saying to you, you don't need, you don't need to do that. Um, but I also want to say that uh, like Mary of Magdala, it's not like your hope is what is driving this whole business. It's in fact, it's, it, it's hopelessness. That is the, is the reason to come up here. So if you're struggling with despair uh, or, or lack of faith, that's, that's an even stronger reason to come and partake and let, let the Lord give you hope here at his table. So on the night he's betrayed...